Okay, Assalamu alaikum, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to day eight of Surah Baqarah. Very exciting. Um, I wanted to start by um, calling out, um, if you haven't seen yet, I'm so excited that Mito and Baba is back, um, version 2.0. Um, for those who are not familiar, um, I guess it was a couple of years ago, we started a conversation and we were concerned about, you know, Muslim youth and how it would be a really interesting, um, you know, uh, opportunity to create a, a conversation between Baba and Mito, our son who was, I guess at the time, 14, maybe 13, um, and just give him an opportunity to ask whatever was on his mind. And it was, you know, a chance for us to kind of... Um, the opportunity to talk about religion and also to convey that you know you are are free to ask anything you want there's nothing off limits um, and you know hopefully get him um, excited um, about you know what we were doing um, and it was a really lovely series I don't remember exactly how many episodes we did we have a couple more too from before we came to Ohio um, but you know it was a really important conversation for a number of reasons um, one it was like you know Mita was someone who I've spoken about before, like when I um, was thinking carefully about how I wanted to talk to him about Islam as he was growing up, you know, and, and every parent who has a child and starts thinking about, you know, how do I want to introduce even the concept of God, the, you know, Islam and all of these sorts of things, like how, how do I do this? Um, you know, I was very intentional in trying to just have him focus on kind of main, um, you know, beautiful humanistic qualities and values, um, things that a child could, you know, very easily relate to about being kind and good and honest and all of these sorts of things. Nothing too heavy in terms of Islamic theology because those things I feel are really difficult for um, younger people and are much more meaningful when you are looking for those things because you actually want to know what they are. So for me, it was really important for him to be focused on being a good person, know that God is in the room with us, God is with us, and that, you know, he's never alone in that sense, but just to focus on, you know, really like the beautiful qualities of being kind and, and all of that. Um, and so, you know, when we got into the Mito and Baba conversations, um, you know, it was sort of an introduction to Islam and it was a chance for him to talk to his dad and ask questions about, you know, big questions like, you know, meaning of life and um, things that I think everyone, even, you know, adults wonder about. And a lot of feedback that we got um, from the, the shows is that um, even adults were learning a lot from this engagement. So I think it was a really um, powerful and beautiful um, exchange. And so when we moved here to Ohio, um, you know, and, and things changed and with COVID and all of that, there was a break in the action. And we, of course, were very busy with Project Illumin. And um, I was really excited, you know, last, I think a couple of halakas ago, I introduced um, this uh, video um, game, a video addict specialist, a psychologist who had a podcast and it was something that Mito had turned me onto. And from him actually listening to this podcast himself, he became interested again in the idea of creating a podcast and bringing Mito and Baba back to life. So it was actually his suggestion to say, I'd like to do it again. So um, we were so excited, we jumped on the opportunity. And so this last Sunday, we went ahead and re-recorded re re this you know, video of the conversation, but we also recorded the audio, which we will turn into a podcast and have Mito involved in terms of like, you know, creating how that is, is um, put out in a way that you know kids in his generation would be interested but it was you know really it's gotten a lot of we've gotten a lot of really wonderful feedback from it he's clearly older now and you know he has um, a different you know perspective on life and so it's I think especially important at this age again to connect with his dad and to feel that he can ask any questions so um, I really wanted to just encourage people to watch it because I think it's um, 
And what was powerful about it too was just kind of seeing how a son and um, and his dad can interact and talk. And um, so let me just share one one really nice message that we got. So um, this was. Um, I just got this today. I watched the latest episode of Mito and Baba and found the topics discussed very insightful. I especially love them talking about having a relationship with Earth, which Mito said he didn't think was a thing. Um, it was thought-provoking to realize how we are diverted from real issues, how familial relations, uh, relationships are modeled on pre-existing schemas we have from our own families, how our feelings aren't new and our parents have experienced them but forgotten it. This is an important lesson to keep that inner child alive. Um, the human trafficking segment was mind-blowing, especially learning that it happens through social media. The Obama administration's involvement in the rise of CC was something I didn't even know. My biggest takeaway was needing to take responsibility for our own soul and for our own intellect and how we can't drift in this world anymore and we have to discover our purpose. In a nutshell, Asuli's content is fascinating. Please keep doing what you're doing. Could you also please provide other reliable news sources? I've downloaded Democracy Now! and Intercept since you mentioned it. Um, so and then she goes on from there. So you can tell we covered a lot of topics from, you know, human trafficking to finding your purpose in life to your relationship with your world. Um, and it was just, uh, and the technology, we talked about Facebook and all of this sort of thing. So it was a really wonderful conversation. Um, so, you know, and, and hopefully we'll have more, more issues um, to come. So um, yeah, I encourage you to watch that. And then Secondly, I wanted to just sort of um, continue on from um, something I raised in my introduction in the last halakha, um, which was a couple of posts that were sort of like market research that I found interesting. So Zahra Binlu, um, from who's the head of care in San Francisco, and Hossam Ailush, who's the head of care in Southern California, had posted questions on their Facebook pages, um, which to me was extremely valuable to understand, you know, where Muslims are and what they're thinking. And I had this huge stack um, because um, Zahra asked the question, what will it take for Islam to be seen as an asset in the United States? And Hussam asked the question, you know, what are the top three challenges, in your opinion, that American Muslims are facing? And there was just a steady stream of comments that, you know, ranged um, all over the place. And I had mentioned that I would kind of go through those comments and see um, and come back and, and share. So I wanted to do that. Um, so, you know, the comments keep coming. And um, I just, you know, as you can imagine, you know, I, there were a whole host of different things. So for, um, let me just give you some examples. You know, identity crisis among youths, spiritual crisis among youths, mental health, children, social media, young women questioning how women's roles are conveyed by scholars, parental involvement in teaching Islam, and a lack of ability to talk to parents about their doubts about Islam, so leading to atheism, um, existential crisis from a lack of knowledge, um, lack of representation in media and politics, lack of presence in policymaking and conversations on climate change, racism, and power issues, a lack of Muslim leadership or that leadership is old, disconnected, or have poor leadership skills, um, a lack of pride in being Muslim, a lack of unity among Muslims, um, social pressures um, for people to conform to the West and materialism and capitalism. Um, you know, so it just it went on and on as you could imagine. There were some people who sort of looked at it as it's not our fault. It's because you know the Americans um, have a particular attitude. You know, it's a colonial world. Um, some people turned internal and was like, okay, well, we need to be better Muslims. We need to be more connected to our faith. We need to be more proud. Um, other people were like, well, never. We're never going to be seen as an asset. Um, you know, and very low on the list. Um, 
and, and even things like time. We just need time, you know, so people can, I guess, change their views. Very low on the list were education. And most strikingly to me, as I mentioned last time, was um, you know really a mention of the Quran. But as I thought more about what I saw, even more interesting to me is no one mentioned the word God. Some people referenced Allah sort of in passing, in reference to you know like oh like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala wants us to do blah blah blah. But no one mentioned a relationship with God. Um, I mean, I look at a lot of these things when people write, you know, like, what's wrong, as symptomatic. And so I'm always interested in saying, okay, well, let's dig a little deeper and let's think about what's the root cause. Because all of these things sort of stem from something. And from my perspective, that root cause, you know, as we teach here, is like everything sort of starts and ends with your relationship with God. And I've been always sort of curious and interested to, you know, ask Muslims that I meet, you know, um, especially people who, you know, are looking to reconnect with their faith, you know, how is your relationship, like, do you talk to God? Like, do you have casual conversations? Like, you know, as if God is with you right here, sitting next to you as your friend, you know, if you're driving in your car, you know, if you're thinking about anything, whether it's, you know, good, bad, happy, sad, do you, do you just immediately turn to God and just start having a conversation? Because I've always found that that is a really powerful way to just bring God into your life, invite God to be part of your existence, and, and then just get, you know, build the habit of knowing that God is with you everywhere you are and knows everything that's inside of you. I mean, we know these things, we say these things. We say, oh, God is closer than your jugular vein. Yes, God is everywhere. Yes, God knows everything. But, you know, do we really stop and take the time to internalize, like, what does that really mean? And I'm always surprised when a lot of Muslims say, no, you know what, I actually don't have that conversation with God. I always think of God as very far away and very distant or something, you know, or God is something to be scared of, you know, because I've learned to fear God, not to love God. And obviously these are things that, you know, we try to teach here is, you know, building that relationship. And certainly the things that we're learning in the Quran are very much about, you know, loving God and the reciprocity that comes, you know, when you reach out to God and God reaches back to you and, and how that feels, you know, and, and how that's developed through prayer. Um, that is the starting point because when you really internalize, you know, that, that love for God, you know, all of these things that you, that, that you as an individual can do to make a difference in your world will emanate from that desire to make a change. Um, and so, um, you know, even one example that I, I came across today, um, which if, if you guys follow me on Facebook, there's a, a beautiful um, post that someone put up on Humans of New York. I follow this lovely Facebook page. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but um, they, they feature really like compelling stories about human beings and what they're doing in New York. I mean, that's the connection is New York. Um, but there was someone who was sharing how she helps um, handicapped children who really like can't do anything for themselves. And so she was giving an example of one, one child who is, is completely paralyzed and the only thing that she can do is move her eyes. And so she's extremely intelligent, but she's trapped in her body. These are the types of children that she works with. And so she said that for some reason she can connect with this child and read her brain. So even like when they're like on an elevator together and you know they see someone with really tight clothing and the girl like rolls her eyes, um, you know, this woman like giggles and laughs. They look at each other and they laugh. And you know, it's, it's like something that they share. So one of the things that she decided to do for this child and other children that she helps is, um, you know, since this person really will spend, like after they finish school, they'll spend the vast majority of their life in their bedroom, 
she decided that she would take it upon herself to decorate that bedroom of hers and make it magical. Like she thinks of this girl as a butterfly. And so she took the time to really understand like what sorts of things would really appeal to her. And so she told the story about how she didn't allow, um, like her, her father is also, the father of the, the handicapped child is a single father. Um, so for a, a, a bit of time, she didn't allow, you know, this the handicapped child to be in her room while they got the bedroom ready and they just went all out and you see pictures of it on Facebook. So it's colorful, it's beautiful, it's just, you know, transformative. And um, and so when she finished the room and they brought the handicapped girl back in and she saw it, she just went wild and crazy. And it was, you know, and then they she showed other pictures of other bedrooms that she had done. To me, that is what Islam should be right it's something so beautiful it's something that an individual like you recognize someone that needs something there's a way you can connect with that person and make their world incredible and you know I, I don't know anything about this woman whether she's religious or not but to me everything that I've learned about Islam and my understanding of God and all that this is like what Muslims you know this is what Islam should inspire in every Muslim heart and so I, I you know I wanted to share that but Back to the issue of um, the idea that, you know, through all of these comments on social media, that no one raised the issue of my, you know, what needs to change is a relationship with God. I started thinking about the Christian side of things. How many of us, day in and day out, Jesus this and Jesus that and, ho you know, my Lord, you know, it's like Christians have no problem calling out to Jesus. And you know that they have a very vibrant and comfortable relationship with saying, you know, praise the Lord and blah, blah, blah. But it struck me, we don't have that, you know? And I wonder, I mean, it's so this is my, you know, thought provoking question to throw out there. What about that? Is that because, you know, I mean, is that vibrant relationship? I mean, you know, it's, this is of course just impressionistic. But when people are so comfortable calling out Jesus and thanking Jesus and referencing Jesus, you know, that's, that's who they understand as God, but we don't, maybe that is one of the things that really needs to change. And maybe it's one of the first things that can really um, transform that, you know, intimate relationship or building an intimate relationship with God. So anyway, I just wanted to share those thoughts for whatever it's worth. I'm really excited for another, um, amazing halakha on Surah Baqarah. I can't wait to see what we cover. Thank you so much for joining us. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tarabi ihsanin ila yawmiddin. Allahumma shahri sadri wa yassir li amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya Rabbil Alameen. But I think we we um, stopped um, around the one seventies. So we covered one seventy one. Um Yeah. So just a, a quick um, connect.
connector so that we just can connect with where we left off. Remember that the invocation not to follow in the footsteps of Shaitan. Uh, Shaitan. Um, note that this we are dealing with the verses of Surah Al-Baqarah right before the Surah turns, uh, turns to identifying Bir and what Bir entails as we'll see in a second. But, and we said that Surah Al-Baqarah, this is this long introduction before it starts dealing with a number of positive legal commands, but in classic Quranic style, legal commands are always interwoven with spiritual interludes or spiritual interjections as if the law is always presented in a soft bed of moral understandings. Um, and as we noted, that although we, we you know, get accustomed to this hearing this refrain, don't follow in the footsteps of the devil, of shaitan. But as we said, it is actually a very uh, encompassing moral command because innately we, although we might struggle with identifying what is shaitani, what is satanic, but it is much easier to innately identify the aftermath that is left by shaitan, to identify what is demonic by its aftermath. And note that in this context, Ya nasu kulu mimma fil ardi halalan tayyiba. So this is 168 to enjoy Allah's blessings on earth but that refrain halal and tayyib halal we understand but we're going to comment about tayyib in a second and again in 172 so The Prophet ﷺ comments in hadith transmitted by a number of people, but among them Abu Hurairah, that Allah la yaqbalu illa tayyiba, that Allah doesn't accept anything but what is tayyib. And
we often read this and pass over it, but reflect on this refrain that whatever your compass, your anchoring point in the way that you relate to enjoying Allah's bounties, put differently, in the way that you relate to earth and the way that you relate to existence. Um, you are morally, there's a moral refrain and that you must always make sure that in whatever the dynamic is, that you uphold and preserve what is tayyib. And what is tayyib, the simplest way to, to translate tayyib, and most people translate it as just simply good, what is good. But tayyib, the word tiba, kindness, comes from the same root. The word tabib, healer, comes from the same root. Um, the word tababa, to heal, comes from the same root. What is tayyib, like in the same way we know what is demonic by its aftermath, by its consequences. What is tayyib is known by its signifiers. So, So that I, Qiba is kindness, is goodness, with kindness, with, and with purity. And so you pause at this for a second. Because when Allah tells us that Allah doesn't accept, accept the only thing that Allah accepts is what is good, kind, and pure. And the refrain in 168, And again, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُلُوا مِنْ طَيِّبَاتِ مَا رَزَقْنَاكُمْ 172. So clearly that encompasses clean, halal money. So if you, what you eat or what you consume is the result of earnings that are not halal, like the results of usury or exploitation or um, uh, uh, money that is fraudulently obtained or money that, so on. So that's clearly not tayyib. But beyond, even beyond that, money or material that you consume that is obtained as through or as a result of making others suffer or denying other, their, others their right or if you consume oblivious 
to the suffering of others, oblivious to the need of others, that is not tayyib. Then you're you're then you can't describe what you're doing as characterized by tiba. Again, a tayyib is a very broad concept. It is what is good, what is kind, and what is pure. If the meat you consume, you've consumed after animals suffered. So, you, you, the food before you was provided after a process in which animals were tortured. That's not tayyib. If you are traversing upon earth, living off the earth, existing on earth, but causing damage to the earth, that's not tayyib. If you are exploiting the needs of others, so one of the examples given, if you're a merchant and you know that the wealth you've obtained is because you've created scarcity in the market by um, various forms of monopolizing the product, your earnings cannot be characterized with stima. Cannot so you violated that command. Again, we we often pass over that we recite it, but we don't pause at it, because if you truly pause at just, just that simple refrain that comes right before Allah directs our attention to al-bir. So before Allah addresses al-bir, Allah addresses a methodology of life, a philosophy of life that revolves around al-tayyib. What is good, what is kind, and what is pure. Now, think of all the implications of that. So if I am a doctor, and let's say I prescribe pain medicine, so I'm making my living by hooking people onto pain medicine and creating addicts. Your earnings cannot be described as tayyib. It's a disqualifying conduct and again, we, we pass over it. We don't pause because that simple moral refrain could be a moral revolution in your consciousness. To go even a step further, everything that you enjoy is a na'mah from Allah. A na'mah, a gift from Allah. Now, the family you have is a na'mah. The children you have are a na'mah. The parents you have are a na'mah. The siblings you have are a na'mah. 
the spouse you have is a nama. So when Allah says that Allah doesn't accept except what is tayyib, well, as the Prophet said in his famous hadith, and the Quran reminds you that al-tayyibat, what is pure and what is kind and what is good, that becomes a moral yardstick in how you deal with all other human beings that are enamored to you. So it's not just food that you consume. So some of the, I mean, it, it is, it's just unfortunate that we don't teach this material because it's very much part of our tradition that the question that would often come up where a student would ask a sheikh, how do I deal with my husband? Or how do I deal with my wife? And the answer is, enter your conduct in tayyibat. Now that's more profound than you realize because enter your conduct in tayyibat means all that is good, all that is kind, all that is pure. So there is conduct that in, in, innately, intuitively, you know is not pure. In our day and age, like pornography, you know it's not pure. But even more importantly, it's kindness, decency. Anytime that you respond to a na'mah given to you through conduct that is the opposite of a tayyibat, opposite of what is good and kind, then you violated this refrain. Okay. One seventy four we already talked about that the Quranic dealing, especially the the main issue of contention, is that the coming of the Prophet Muhammad was proclaimed in earlier revelations, but And, and this requires, I mean, there are a few studies about this, but they're not anything substantial. That particularly, the, the, um, what emerged in the biblical tradition of denying the branch of Ibrahim salam's lineage that comes from Hagar and Ismail. There is a clear bias in the biblical tradition in favor of Sarah and Ishaq, but sort of disowning Hagar and Ismail as um, 
as if an illegitimate progeny, and not illegitimate in the legal sense, but illegitimate in the moral sense. Okay. So after this, we get now to 177, where, as we said, in Surah Al-Baqarah, you are the refrain is constantly justice, taqwa and adl al bir, taqwa and adl and bir, and quite often al fadl is added in relation to a definition of what al-umm al-wasat is, the, the nation described as the nation of wasat or the nation of the middle that bears witness for Allah. So we get to لَيْسَ الْبِرِّ أَن تُوَلْوُ وُجُوهَكُمْ قِبَلَ الْمَشْرِخُ وَالْمَغْرِبُ وَلَكِنِ الْبِرِّ So Bir, this is 177. Muhammad Asad translates Bir as piety. But Bir is much more than piety. Okay. لَيْسَ الْبِرِّ أَن تُوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ قِبَلَ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبُ وَلَكِنَ الْبِرَّ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةَ وَالْكِتَابِ وَالنَّبِيِّينَ وَآتَ الْمَالَ عَلَى حُبِّهِ ذُوِي الْقُرْبَى وَالْيَتَامَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَابْنَ السَّبِيلِ وَالسَّائِلِينَ فِي الرِّقَابِ وَأَقَامَ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتَى الزَّكَاةَ وَالْمُوفُونَ بِعَهْدِهِمْ إِذَا عَاهَدُوا وَالصَّابِرِينَ فِي الْبَأْسَاءِ وَالضَّرَّاءِ وَحِينَ الْبَأْسِ أُولَئِكَ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُتَّقُونَ So this critical concept of al-birr and al-birr is taqwa in the sense of piety but added to that piety is a, a, a set of moral meanings without which you can't say bir exists and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes to the, the precisely that point of law and says bir that moral stature is not the result of knowing where the the direction of the compass whether in prayer or otherwise. In other words, it's not that technical question of the direction that you take when you are praying. That's not what constitutes birr. Meaning, clearly, the technicalities of law is not what constitutes birr. The technicalities of law are an element in the pursuit of birr but they are never a fulfillment of birr. So, what is birr? Well, first, it is iman. And iman in the final day, iman in all the angels, meaning as we, we've said about some of the Israelite traditions which discriminated against Gabriel, the angel Gabriel in particular, and 
the revelation from Allah, revealed book, the prophets. So, an all-encompassing iman that doesn't discriminate between the prophets and the angels of the Abrahamic tradition. But then, Bir is impossible unless it has a direct impact upon your relationship to money. And it has to be the money that you cherish, not the money that you can do without, not items that you've used, well, you know, like giving uh, old clothes to goodwill, not things that actually don't have an emotional impact upon you, but money that you actually need and desire. In a word, sacrifice. And so you sacrifice, and sacrifice, again, means that you put someone else ahead of your own self, ahead of your own needs, ahead of your own desires. Although I feel I need this, I'm going to deny myself this to benefit someone else. So al-birr itself is piety with the necessary element of sacrifice. Defeating the ego, as Sufis like to put it. But anyway, so that money is given to family in need, dhul khurba, waliyatama, orphans. See how often the Quran emphasizes orphans. Wal masakin and the needy. Wabn al-sabil. Ibn al-sabil is equivalent to our day and age of the refugee. Ibn al-sabil is any human being who is away from home in need. So a, tra a traveler, for instance, who's uh, away, any person who's away from their home and in need. And the, the, the ones that fit that category in our day and age are displaced human beings. People who are refugees, people who have lost their homes. Wasa'ilina for Rikab helping Sa'ilina for Rikab has particular two meanings helping slaves buy their freedom and helping people who find themselves in indentured servitude because of their debts free themselves. So look at how broad the canvas is. You cannot have bir unless what you think of the, all these categories, the qurba, waliyatama, the relatives, orphans, masakin, and the needy, wabn al-sabil, and the refugee, or displaced human beings, wasailina for raqab those who are in an indentured relationship that need to be freed.
because of their death. Now, Imam al-Ghazali and others have written about the moral obligation to know because one possible trick that a lot of people fall into unconsciously is to close off their life so that they are not aware of the need of relatives, of orphans, of the needy, of the refugee. So you don't, you, you don't know about the refugees in need because you actually make sure that the news of these people doesn't reach you. Well, the, the Quran obligates you in order to perform the duty of being an ummah wasat that qualifies morally, ethically, to testify, to bear witness, obligates you to know. So it is not an excuse for in the hereafter that you tell Allah, well, you know, I didn't know that there were orphans in Syria, there were orphans in Yemen. I don't know that there were this organization that took care of orphans and, and was in dire need of money. Um, Grace just told me that she read a story about families in Afghanistan selling their daughters to eat. That apparently there are families that are starving to the point that they are selling off their daughters. For this to happen in Muslim lands, let me again, to put it very bluntly, no amount of pietistic affectations, no amount of pretense of subhanallahs and Allahu Akbars, no amount of pretense of discourse upon scarves and hijabs and whatever else we talk about is going to make up for the fact that in the Muslim Ummah there are people, even if they are in Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria or wherever they are, that are in such dire need that they have to sell their children. What is required of your moral consciousness to, to to qualify for that category of bir is to teach yourself to care. A lot of times, and this is just from even life experience has taught me that, is that people subconsciously subconsciously insulate themselves so that the occasion doesn't arise where they have to struggle with sacrificing financially to help those who need. So as I've mentioned before, I work in the field of human trafficking and and in, in a horror, one of the horrible fields uh, uh, trafficking in organs. Trafficking in organs 
that, I mean, it, it blows my mind that among the highest categories of people who have their organs trafficked in are Muslims. Uh, not just refugees from Yemen or Syria or Muslims from China, um, which are harvested, but remarkably, Muslims from Somalia and Muslims from Mauritania, Somalia particularly, uh, Muslims from Ethiopia that attempt to get to either, most of the time, the through Libya or through Egypt, either they, they try to migrate to Israel, so to cross through Egypt and enter Israel uh, as undocumented, or to get to a ship on the Libyan coast or the Egyptian coast to try to cross to Europe. Well, a, a good percentage of these people end up being captured by organ harvesters. And a very high percentage of these people are Muslims. And I mentioned before that there's a ridiculous trade that is called halal organs, that they're actually those who sell the organs on, in the black market, marketed as halal organs, meaning that was harvested from a Muslim. So you're gonna have the kidney of a Muslim or a liver of a Muslim or whatever. And most people don't want to hear about things like that. Because once you hear about it, then you feel obligated to do something about it. And, you know, now it's been 30 years of Islamic centers not wanting me to give lectures about that. Oh, we, we want to invite you, give a lecture about the seerah of the Prophet, or you know, give a lecture about this or that, but not, don't talk to us about uh, this field organ trafficking and human trafficking. Well, I want to talk to you about it so I can give you the name of organizations that actually work to do something about it. Well, no, 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 you know, this stuff belongs in a classroom at university. It's absurd. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obligates us morally when we are Muslims to be at the cutting edge of ethical oversight, but you cannot witness from the, from the immoral position of sitting on a couch and doing nothing about it. Because if, if, if you are not ahead of others in doing what is good, then by what right are you going to witness, testify as to that good? You, you see what I'm saying? You, it, it is the, the, the moral obligation to, to witness is a moral obligation to do. Because a witness who says, well, go ahead, you, you do something about it. Then we fall into the, the other moral failure of those who say but do not do. Why, why, why do you say what you don't do? Okay.
a lot in a lot of Muslim countries, I, 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 you know, it, because it's just the frustration at the 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 fact that we are students of the Quran or we're supposed to be, but does bitter exist in our societies? Reflect on it. Reflect upon every society that you've dwelt dwelt in. How many of these societies have you experienced real bitter? Because real bitter, in a lot of Muslim countries, if you can't pay off your debts, you go to prison. You actually, you're imprisoned. This comes from French law, by the way. It doesn't come from Islamic law. It comes from French law. But because a lot of Muslim countries uh, transplanted French law, they, they imprison those who can't pay off their debts. But how many Muslim institutions exist that are committed to doing something about modern human trafficking or indentured service or the, the grotesque conditions of laborers in many parts of the world, sadly, among the worst human trafficking countries, some of them are Muslim countries. And again, it is remarkable that we recite this Quran all the time and live with these exist with, with these uh, realities. When Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us, "Bear witness," but there is no bearing witness without adl, without bir, and without taqwa. But bir itself encompasses taqwa, by the way. Okay. Then after that. After Iman and actually sacrificing to elevate the status of others comes Salah and Zakah. Now, after Salah and Zakah comes Walmufuna bi Ahdim Ida Ahadu. Again and again, how many times have we seen? In the ayat that we studied, Allah underscores that an essential part of moral character is that people can depend on your word. That if you say, I will do, then you will do. Al-Mufuna bil-Ahd, Al-Ahd is any obligation that you commit yourself to doing whether it's a contract or whether it's a promise or whether it's a date. So if you tell someone, you know, I'm going to come over at six o'clock, you cannot free yourself of that obligation without communication. Once you've given a promise, it's a promise. And you cannot ignore a promise. That's a moral issue. This teaching people to respect their word is something that starts in your childhood, something that you pick up from your parents. And again, how did it ever become that 
it, words have become to mean so little among Muslims. I mean, it is not, I, mean, I don't shock anyone when I say that um, a lot of people from my background will tell you, we don't, you know, we, we, we try to avoid doing business with Muslims. I mean, in my legal practice, when I used to have legal practice, if I had Muslim clients, I would require Muslim clients to pay in advance. Because no one would give me an absolute headache in paying their bills like Muslims. If I had non-Muslim clients, I knew that I would send the bill and, it, you know, I give them 30 days to pay the bill, they'll pay it. But with Muslim clients, I knew it will be a song and dance through hard experience I've learned. So I would insist, regardless of how rich they are, and I've had clients who are among the wealthiest in the world, they have to pull, pay in full in advance. You know, you have a retainer, and every time the retainer starts going down below a certain level, you say you have to pay up because effectively, but that is just, it blows your mind. How did we ever get to this position? How? Okay, and then, so, Bir doesn't exist unless, without material sacrifice and care for others. And Bir doesn't exist without Salah and Zakah again. And Al Wafa Bil Ahd, honoring your obligations. So those who persevere, not lose faith, when they are tested with hardship and harm. Al-Ba'sa is hardship like poverty, like illness. Al-Darra is anything that harms you or causes you pain. That's the darr some commentators said that this means is a specific reference to persevering or being patient when you are forced to go to war. But that's not the likely meaning. The likely meaning of is that you, those who Uh, persevere or those who hold themselves together upon the shock of harm. So Ba'sa are those who persevere in a in a course of hardship where you get you know the hardship exists day after day after day. But Hin al Bas is when a calamity first falls you. There are people where upon being struck by a calamity they completely lose it. It, beca it becomes their undoing. But there is great virtue in being able to turn upon being struck by a calamity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
that instead of your first reaction being, why God? Why me? Your first reaction is, Allah, I accept. I accept what you decreed. Then those are described as الذين صدقوا or الصادقون those are those who deserve the status of الصادقون أصحاب الصدق the true ones and المتقون and the people of taqwa this ayah is at the heart of everything that shapes our understanding of law because as we will see right after this Surah Al-Baqarah will proceed to tell us various positive legal commandments about various things but it anchored us or anchored our attitude towards law in Al-Tayyibat and in Al-Birr which again I repeat necessary for witnessing and testimony as, as we've said repeatedly now why is this so critical because any rule of law that does not uphold al-tayyibat and al-birr has lost its course so for instance these families who are selling their children in Afghanistan according to the article that some of these families are selling them meaning selling them in marriage they, they, they sell them off to be married to people who are much much older than them and in return for quote-unquote the dowry being paid to the family but a lot of these girls are children and according to the article they are citing prophets marriage to Aisha as legal proof that what they're doing is lawful it, it takes a great deal of self-deception to cite the example of the Prophet's marriage to Aisha, which is not a marriage entered into under duress, and not a marriage entered into through Dharar. And the, the position of the meaning of childhood changes from one age from another to another. In the the village that my family comes from in Egypt, it was quite common to see twelve years old, twelve year olds or fourteen year olds as full grown women. In in these villages where you where people grew up, uh, eating what they eat, the, with the experiences they have working in fields, adulthood was attained early. 
But even then, with everything that we know about what modernity, the way that modernity shapes human consciousness, there is no doubt that you are the, the consciousness of human beings is such that even a little girl in Afghanistan will dream of a world what the world has exposed her to education, love, understanding, respect, these types of things. And you cannot come and ignore all of that and say, well, I'm citing the illegal precedent and here we go. I would respect you much more of say, I am doing what's wrong because I need to eat or I need to feed the other children. At, at least then we are confronting the issue with brutal, but invoking the law to do what is contra to al-tayyibat. And al-tayyibat, a little girl that is being, that will be raped on her first night and will inevitably cry and will inevitably enter into a marriage, into a household which has much older, uh, already existing wives, who will use that little girl as a slave serving the family, because that's what always happens. You can't describe that as a Taliban. You can't. So my point is that the very definition of a Taliban is applied morality, is applied ethics. It is not simply an, a, 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 a rhetorical device. We say, well, and, and especially the way people have understood, ignored the entire Islamic tradition, and they think of Tayyibat is to eat halal meat. That, that's not, that is, you know, it, it, the, 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 um, the fringe of the fringe of what, what might constitute a Tayyibat. But the moral responsibility burdens all of us because if Allah says al-birr and Allah, we are commanded to attain birr. And if that is the command and I am living my life not troubled by what happens to the orphans in Syria, and I could tell you a lot of horrible, horrible stories about what happens to orphans in Syria or what happens to the orphans in Yemen. Leave alone, I mean, the, the, the Muslims in China, that, that's even, or now what, something like, if, I'm, if, if my heart doesn't talk to me, doesn't interrogate me about the nature of my birth, then we have a very serious problem then you are anchored in something, but it's not Islam. Okay. Now, it is not a coincidence that Allah introduces the concept of al-birr, as I said before, starting to talk about a, a number of positive legal issues. So, Ya ayyuhal ladina amanu. This is 179. 
يا أيها الذين أمنوا كتب عليكم القصاص في القتلى الحر بالحر والعبد بالعبد والأنثى بالأنثى فمن عفي له من أخيه شيء فاتباعه بالمعروف وأداء إليه بإحسان ذلك تخفيف من ربكم ورحمة فمن اعتدى بعد ذلك فله عذاب أليم ولكم في القصاص حياة يا أولي الألباب لعلكم تتقون So the first legal treatment is the issue of qasas itself and you have a, a, a just retribution is ordained for you in cases of killing the free for the free and the slave for the slave and the woman for a woman and if something of guilt is remitted to a guilty person by their brother this remission shall be adhered to with fairness and restitution to his fellow man shall be made in a good manner so the last part about remission is that if if someone forgives and says i forgive no need to punish then that is taken in consideration in light of a variety of factors but the first part there is in the juristic tradition a debate that centered around this area and some of the debate is rather literalistic and mechanical in that when it says a free for a free man for a free man or the free for the free man or woman or al abd bil abd a slave for a slave or a woman for a woman does this mean that if a abd if a slave kills a free then there is no qasas because it says what has been decreed to you is punishment qasas in these situations so if you're reading it literally does this mean that if a slave kills a free man there is no qasas or if a free man kills a slave there is no qasas or if a woman kills a man is there no qasas or if a man kills a woman is there no qasas in other words, those who insisted in reading it in a, in a literal sense couldn't answer the question of, well, what happens if a man kills a woman, a woman kills a man, a free kills a slave, a slave kills a free. And if they said, well, no, it's, it means that if a woman kills a man, it's a reduced qasas, so not the full qasas, that goes against the literal wording of the ayah if you're reading it literally so those who claim to be literalists and hence insisted that well we punish if a slave kills a free man the punishment or sorry if a free man kills a slave the punishment is half of what would be had if a free man kills a free man well they they run into another problem well, what if a slave kills a free man? 
in this situation, they wanted to argue, well, punishment shouldn't be cut in half. It should be full punishment. But again, it would go against a literal reading of the ayah. So, put it differently, maybe bring it closer to mind. There are some who said that if a woman kills a man, if, sorry, if a man kills a woman, then the punishment, if half of what would occur if a man kills a man. But then, when it comes to a woman killing a man, they wanted to argue, no, in this case, it would be full-scale punishment. But why? Because that runs contrary to a literal reading of the ayah. So, this is precisely why all the jurists who understood this ayah contextually as to what it was saying, quite prevalent, whether in Mecca or Medina, was a, a, the idea that punishment, there, that there are no set punishments for any crime. Punishment is defined by class status and lineage. And what this often translated into is that the life of a, a, a man from a man or even a woman from an elite class could be worth the life of a number of people. So, if an on let's say a an honorable man kills an honorable meaning in status, in elite status, kills another elite status man, then it might be a life for a life. But if someone from a lower status tribe killer kills a man of a higher status tribe, then the higher status tribe would demand the death of 10 men in return. What this often descended into is feuding these feuds that would go on for a very long time. And the ayah came, the, the focus here is on the idea of just kasas. That's what it's expressing. That no longer are you allowed to take several lives for a life. And no longer you are you allowed to vary the, the price blood money paid in compensation according to social status or lineage or tribal status. This is the way the ayah was understood at the time of the Prophet that when it, when it comes in and says is there is equality in lives And the focus here is not on saying whether it, it, um, whether compensation should be less if a free man kills a slave, because as it, again, think of it as if a slave kills a free man, 
there is no grounds if you are reading this ayah literally to say well if a free, slave kills a free man there is full punishment but if a, a free man kills a slave there is only half the punishment or half the compensation because the the, the ayah creates a relationship of relationship of equalities the idea is to underscore the principle of equal worth in punishment or that punishments are streamlined and not varied according to tribal status or class status or whatever other status and that is why it is followed by saying وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقَصَاصِ حَيَاتٌ يَا أُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ This is 179. This is why it's followed then by saying, so in the law of retribution, this is Muhammad as it says, in the law of just retribution, you who are, uh, those who, uh, uh, there is life for you, so that you might remain conscious of God, so if you have proper insight. So, وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقَصَاصِ حَيَاتٌ يَأُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ Those of you who are rational, those of you who have insight, Al-Abzul Al-Bab are people of wisdom or people of knowledge or people of rationality. You describe them as Zul Al-Bab. Al-Lub is your intellect. And so it's like saying, oh, you people of intellect, please understand or understand that in the principle, in just application of punishment, You, in fact, honor and protect life. In the, the converse is true as well. In unjust application of punishment, you demean and degrade life. So, this entire portion of these two ayahs following right after Bir, establishes that it, it, it is an affirmation of the principle of justice itself. Not to be read as some have tried to do it in this myopic literal fashion of trying to figure out, well, what happens if a man kills a woman or a woman kills a man. It is simply saying there is a relationship of equity and justice is a must for life to be sustained and preserved. Again, as Muhammad Ghazali used to say, it is, an, it is a contradiction in terms to think of a Muslim who doesn't believe in justice or who doesn't live in service of justice. To have a Muslim, as in one of the khutbahs that I gave, to say, oh, you know, if you're constantly talking about justice, then you're just an angry Muslim. And that's, that means you're a bad Muslim because you're just angry. It is mind-blowing. When Allah teaches you what bir is, Allah teaches you what justice is, and Allah tells you your entire life must be anchored around service of the principle of al-bir and the principle of justice. 
how could you have Muslims who are oblivious? It's it's a, it's again as Sheikh Ghazali used to say, it, it, it is it is simply a theologically incoherent position that the most among the most unjust societies in our world are Muslim societies. So then that immediately means we've abandoned the road. We are not on a Sirat al-Mustaqim. It immediately means we've been abandoned by Allah and that it requires a drastic and revolutionary, revolutionary uh, recalibrating of the course. Our entire way of thinking, our entire way of dealing, our entire way of learning. Because it cannot be. It cannot be. It cannot be that we claim we have taqwa, but bir doesn't exist in our societies. It cannot be that we claim we have taqwa, but justice doesn't exist in our societies. Okay, let's pray, Maghrib. So, next, we have legislation particularly as to Lawasiya or leaving a will um, so just read Muhammad as it says ordain for you when death approaches any of you and he and person is leaving behind much wealth to make bequests in favor of parents and other close skin in accordance with what is fair. This is binding on all who are conscious of God and if anyone alters such a provision after having come to know, know it, the sin of acting thus shall fall only upon those who have altered it. Verily God is all hearing and all knowing. If however one has reason to fear that the test testator has committed a mistake or a deliberate wrong, and thereupon brings, upon, brings about a settlement between the heirs, he will incur no sin thereby. Verily God is much forgiving in the dispenser of grace. The occasion for these ayat is that often um, the practice of we leaving a written will or a, an attested will or bequest uh, was not common uh, in that culture. And there were well-known feuds that resulted because of um, conflicting testimony about what a particular person wanted done with their property after their death. So um, I don't remember the names of the people involved, but that one person would say, he promised me this horse on such and such occasion. Another person would say, well, no, this sword was promised to me uh, this house was promised to me. It, it, it promised to me the prophets from 
uh, the trade of this particular year, and, and so on. And feuding would go on because of that. Um, and the, the Quran comes in and basically says, leaving an attested will is an organizing um, principle that wills must should be written and witnessed and the other thing the the especially 181 is that Uh, uh, feuds that would would result from uh, these will disputes, the punishment where you are in basically punishing a party for you believe that they uh, are falsely testifying as to what a deceased person wanted. Um, there was a tendency among these feuding tribes or um, uh, these long-held feuds to not just hold a particular person who you accuse of false witness responsible, but to go far beyond that person and say, well, if I can't punish him, I'll punish his children, I'll punish his uh, relatives, I will, you know, I will punish whoever I can get my hands on rather than the the actual alleged offender. And so as the Quranic principle was Qasas generally is particularity and proportionality and the specifics mechanics of justice. Um, Okay, and then, so after you have the principle on Qasas, the organizing principle on leaving a bequest that you should think about what will happen after your death, and you bear a responsibility to as much as possible organize this matter. Now later on we know that the Quran comes with specific shares um, in inheritance, but Ayatul Wasiyah remains that if there is any discretionary wealth, leaving a bequest, and even leaving a bequest that would resolve any possible uh, arguments after your death, is an Islamic act. It's an Islamic moral obligation. To, to, you know, you, you can't just simply say, well, I'll, I'll leave it to my kids to work it out. Um, or as, as a lot of wealthy people, in fact, do. I mean, fights over bequests and, and inheritances, especially when that inheritance is worth something, has destroyed many families. Um, anyway. Then next is the Quranic prescriptions on fasting, um, which is addressed in Surah Al-Baqarah in two different parts, and 
first the verses that prescribed fasting and then later on an issue comes up as to the lengths of fasting and other particulars about what you're allowed to do while you are fasting that is addressed by Surah Al-Baqarah in due course. Um, but you notice from 183 to 185 is the the first prescription required or first prescription as to the uh, uh, fast during the months of Ramadan. Uh, fasting, of course, was pr practiced by Muslims before then, but there was a great deal, I mean, whether uh, uh, fasting was done in months of Ramadan or outside the months of Ramadan, uh, fasting varied, um, uh, which it was regularized in Surah Al-Baqarah or systematized in Surah Al-Baqarah in what the form of fasting that we know today. Okay, now we notice, in, and just n note this with me, that in Surah Al-Baqarah, every time you have God decreeing prescribed laws, you will find invariably God reminds you that it's as if you can never lose sight of what these laws are for. So one eighty-six, right after just these few laws about qasas, about wasiya, about siyam, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّاعِ إِذَا دَعَانٍ فَلْيَسْتَجِيبُ لِي وَلِيُؤْمِنُوا بِي لَعَلَّهُمْ يُرْشِدُونَ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْشُدُونَ Right after Allah reminds you that Allah indeed is close. It's as if you are you are being conditioned to not thinking about law without thinking about the relationship that this law is supposed to serve. And whether you are talking about qasas and whether you are talking about wasiyah or whether you are talking about siyam, the core issue is closeness to God. Is God being present in your life? It's as if Allah is, is telling you, it is not the law, it's not the practice that will in fact sustain you, but it is following the practice coupled with an actual closeness to Allah so that this practice, in fact, serves that purpose. That, that Allah is close, and we'll see this several times in Surah Al-Baqarah. Then, right after this reminder, this is the... Surah Al-Baqarah comes back to the issue of Siyam, and the question, this is in 187. Um, two things. First, which I'll comment on. Let's see how 
in Muhammad Asad says, it is lawful for you to go in unto your wives during the night preceding the day's fast. They as are garments for you and you are as a garment for them. God is aware uh, uh, that you would have deprived yourselves of this right and so God has turned unto you in God's mercy and removed this hardship from you. Now then you may lie with them skin to skin. Interesting, okay. And avail yourselves of that which God has ordained for you. And eat and drink until you can discern the white streak of dawn upon the blackness of night. Yeah. And then resume fasting until nightfall. So, and do not lie with them skin to skin when you are about to abide in meditation and houses of worship. This is Muhammad Asad's translation. Okay. I'll explain why he says skin to skin. So, the Arabs, which probably is from just the Near Eastern culture that existed at the time of Islam generally, the idea that in fasting that it is not just an abstention from food, but it is also abstention from all sexual relations. And whatever period in, in pre-Islamic culture, the, the idea that whatever period it is, it, it is decreed that you fast, then you also abstain from um, things like sexual relations. And so when the Quranic prescription came as to fast in the months of Ramadan, uh, the automatic reaction or the assumption that of many Muslims was that sexual relations are not allowed in the months of Ramadan. And several incidents take place where people come to the Prophet and say, last night I, and they would deal with it as if they failed, as if it's a sin. And they would ask the Prophet about about what repentance should I do because I had a sexual sexual relations with my wife last night. And the Quranic revelation came basically saying that there is no uh, repentance required because it's not a sin. Um, and in fact, that beautiful expression, Hun libasun lakum antul libasun lahum. A very tender reminder that you are, it's as if you are encompassed by a, a literally like as if you are in one garment. So it's as if Allah is, is saying to you, that Allah wouldn't expect an alienation of, and, and look at the way it, 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 the sexual relations are, are portrayed, an alienation of this, this, this um, libas, this finding repose, finding a, a succor, finding tranquility. Um, 
as if all of that has to be attendant to the sexual act. It's a, a, just a, a remarkable image. And then the reason that Muhammad Assas says skin by skin is that Rafas is one of the words that is used for um, sexual relations and anything from intercourse to anything less than intercourse. And Mubashara Many commentators said al-Mubashara is indistinguishable from Rafas, that al-Mubashara is also any sexual relations, including intercourse and anything short of intercourse. But other Quranic commentators and linguists said al-Mubashara is the act of putting skin against skin without intercourse. So it's like holding someone. Now, this is interesting because some Quranic commentators had a, you know, coming from a typical conservative um, outlook, had a problem with the idea of why would you lie next to your spouse naked or skin to skin, either fully naked or, par or partially naked. Um, and they, they sort of found this idea objectionable. And so they said, no, Mubashara then has to mean a, a sexual act. The reason Muhammad Asad translates it as skin to skin is because of the Quranic commentators who said, no, we, we know what Mubashara is. And Mubashara is uh, um, hugging, basically, where you are holding on to another person, unclosed, in an expression of intimacy, short of intercourse. I mean, it's a, it's a, and the way we approach language um, can often tell us a great deal about our cultural assumptions and our attitude towards life. Uh, why does Allah use the word rafas and then use the word mubashara? There is a report that, which I, I find difficult to imagine, uh, that there is a fellow who during um, who decided to um, um, what is the word uh, I'm looking for um, who do ikhtila in, in mosque to stay in the mosque basically during the whole month of Ramadan and that he laid with his wife in the prophet's mosque under a, a, a cover, under a blanket and that they were naked inside and that this basically, this revelation is saying, don't do that at the mosque. Although this report, I mean, is, I don't, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, the, the, that's what antum akifuna fil masajid, tilka hududullah falat taqrabuha. Okay. So, after addressing this specific issue, and 
نوت حتى وكلوا واشربوا حتى يتبين لكم الخيط الابيض من الخيط الاسود من الفجر. There is an interesting report that when this was revealed, there is a man who came to the Prophet and said, I have this khayt, he had a thread. And uh, I've had a hard time measuring when I should begin my fast using this thread. And the Prophet ﷺ responds to him by saying, how could you have understand this ayah this way? The thread that Allah is talking about is the thread that differentiates day from night. So in other words, as Muhammad Asad puts it, and that's why he translated it this way, um, until you see discern the white streak of dawn against the blackness of night. So the, the thread al-khayt is not as some people understand it, that you have a, a, a string and then you say, can I tell the color of the string? But it is the streak that differentiates the rise of dawn from the end of night. Al-khayt is a streak. Um, I actually, um, um, what was the name of the astronomer? Um, he was not a Muslim, he doesn't know anything about Islam, but he, he chimed in. What was his name? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, Tyson, right? Who, who said, well, uh, the Quran says uh, you have to use a thread or something. Like that. Anyway, it was silly. Then, Another prescription, one that we often ignore, translate and do not devour one, one another's possessions wrongfully, neither employ legal artifices or legal tricks with a view to devouring sinfully and knowingly anything that by right belongs to others. Uh, that's an interesting translation. Okay, so another prescription is, again, a reminder, moral dealing with financial issues. But this, this refrain that meaning that do not use money in order to use money with people in power in order to corrupt the administration of justice so that you can attain a financial benefit. So what would fit if you pay a bribe? That would be pay, paying the hukam. If, like bribing a judge or bribing a politician. But not only that, but even things that would 
any usage of financial resources so that you can position yourself at an unfair advantage vis-a-vis -vis others. And there was an, among Quranic commentators, what was the occasion for this ayah? Because we know at the time of the Prophet um, who was using money in this way that it would become the context for this area, no one knows. There, there, we, we don't have reports, but regardless, the prescription is, 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 a, is, is a quite sweeping. If you live in a society in which those in power can serve those who enrich them, then that is a corruption. That is a, a, a violation of Quranic prescription. A very powerful statement against corrupt abuses of power. But even a, beyond that, I understand this area as requiring us to organize systems of power in our society so that the ability of those in power to enrich themselves must by definition be limited. In other words, it, it, it charges you with the obligation to figure out how to effectively organize law, organize structure of power, organize financial systems to prevent the natural tendency of the powerful to enrich themselves and become more powerful at the expense of the weak. So you can't say, well, you know, what are we going to do? Just corruption exists. Surat al-Baqarah, like it obligated you to bear witness, like it obligated you to be a moral example, like it obligated you to embody al-birr, like it obligated you to, to be on this moral trajectory, here again it obligates you to organize society so that the ability of the powerful to extract money from the disempowered and the incentive for the disempowered to... So if you live in a society, as in a lot of Muslim countries, where the only way you can get your kids a good job, the only way you can get put them in a good school, the only way you can uh, even just attain your basic rights in life is by paying off those in power. 
by definition, that's a not a, 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 a society that is at odds with the Quranic vision. An impious society. Okay. So, then, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَهِلَّةِ So, the, this, the, uh, it's an interesting story. A group of people came to the Prophet and asked the Prophet about the crescent moon. And their Quranic commentators make a very interesting note, is that they say, why did they go and ask the Prophet about the crescent moon? If they wanted to understand why the moon is a crescent, i.e., what is the relationship of the moon to the sun, the way that light reflects on the moon, then they should have asked the Prophet, they should have asked a, a, a scientist, a person who actually knows the uh, science of the moon. Uh, and this is not my point. This is actually in a lot of the tafsir. So the, they asked the Prophet about the crescent moon, and I think the context is that they were expecting a lot, the Prophet to repeat a lot of the superstition, superstitious mythology about um, the meaning of a crescent moon. And the, the Quran instructs the Prophet to give them a very, um, how do I put it, a dry answer. Kul hiya wal Tell them the rather obvious point that, well, the crescent moon is a way that we can tell time and it is the way that we can know that this is a time for Hajj, or this is a time for um, uh, the 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 change from one month to another. So, in other words, he gave them a, one an obvious answer, but two, an answer anchored in 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 what the moon means Islamically not a scientific response and didn't give them a response or at least Allah tells the Prophet not to give them a n not to accommodate or to uh, in, uh, um, put up with what they seem to want to draw the Prophet into. Okay. So, and when I sell bill أن تأتوا البيوت من ظهورها ولكن البر من اتقى وأتوا البيوت من أبوابها واتقوا الله لعلكم تفلحون. In the same way, there was all these superstitious beliefs about the crescent moon and the full moon, and um, that the Quran quite dryly doesn't accommodate and doesn't entertain. There was another superstitious belief that if you visit Mecca, if you go on Hajj or go on Umrah, that it was bad luck to enter your home from the front door. 
And so what specially the Ansar, the, the uh, natives of Medina would do, because that seemed to be a, a belief in Yathrib particularly, they would enter their homes if they visit the Kaaba, they would, upon coming back to their homes, they would make sure that they would enter from the back. From, effectively, there's a home and there's a courtyard to the home. And the home has a ceiling, the courtyard is not roofed. So, it is the belief that upon first entry, if there's a roof above your head, then that is bad luck. So they would enter from the backyard. And the Quran comes and says, this is nonsense. Now, interestingly though, although that is the context of the ayah, um, many Quranic commentators understood, yes, that is the context of the ayah, but the meaning is is broader than that and wider than that. And so they would often talk about that this command incorporates or covers um, that when you are approaching a question of religion or when you are approaching a question of law do not enter do not approach this issue from the back door meaning you have to understand the objective and the priority and the purpose if you fail to understand the objective, the priority, and the purpose, then you are approaching this legal or theological issue from the tail end in our modern language. So you are, in fact, corrupting, which is consistent with the entire theme of Surah Al-Baqarah. That, yes, you have law, and for the first time in Medina, Allah is giving you the law, but time and time again, Allah reminds you, don't repeat the mistake of the Israelites who worshipped the law for its own sake. And in the same way that Allah says, it bitter is not that you turn your face right or you turn your face west or you turn, turn your face east. Here again, Allah says that Bir is not this issue of where you, the, the mechanics of where you enter, but the actual meaning behind it. And by the time we are around verse 190 in Surah Al-Baqarah, by then the battle of Badr and the battle of Uhud in most reports had already taken place. Some reports, some commentators said Badr had taken place, but Uhud hadn't taken place, although I doubt that. I think it, it has. And so this is 
the first systematic Quranic prescription about warfare. So, وَقَاتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ الَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ وَلَا تَعْتَدُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمَعْتَدِينَ So, one nighty, fight those who fight you, but don't transgress, because God doesn't love transgressors. وَاقْتُلُوهُمْ حَيْسُ ثَقِفْتُمُوهُمْ This is... Um, وَاخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ حَيْثُ أَخْرَجُوكُمْ وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَشَدُّ مِنَ الْقَدْرِ وَلَا, تقاتل ولا تُقَاتِلُوهُمْ عِنْدَ الْمَجْدِ الْحَرَامِ حَتَّى يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ فِيهِ فَإِنْ قَاتَلُوكُمْ فَاقْتُلُوهُمْ كَذَلِكَ جَزَاءُ الْكَافِرِينَ فَإِنْ تَهُوا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ وَقَاتِلُوهُمْ حَتَّى لَا تَكُونَ فِتْنَةٌ وَيَكُونَ الدِّينُ لِلَّهِ فَإِنْ انْتَهُوا فَلَا عُدْوَانَ إِلَّا عَلَى الظَّالِمِينَ So, this, first let's read the so, so, wage war against, fight those who fight you and do not transgress, do not commit aggression, for God does not love aggressors. And, Slay them wherever you may come upon them and drive them away from wherever they drove you. So, you are in the same way that they drove you out of your homes, you drove, drive them out of where they drove you out of. So, a, a, a principle of proportionality in self defense. For oppression is worse than killing. And fight not against them near the Masjid al-Haram, Kaaba, unless they fight you, again, uh, fight you there first. But if they fight you there, then fight them there. Such shall be the recompense of those who deny the truth. And if they desist, God is much is much forgiving and a dispenser of grace. Fight against them until there is no more oppression and all worship is devoted to God alone. But if they desist, desist then all hostility shall cease, save against those who will feel you do wrong. So, so, you fight those who fight you in the same way that they ejected you from your homes, you are fight to address this injustice. Why fitna, which Muhammad Asad translates as oppression, al-fitna is, yeah, it includes oppression, but it is moral defeat that results from an unaddressed injustice so if there is injustice and we don't address the injustice that's a fitna now all Muslims in the modern age know fitna as sexual enticement there are reasons why that got called fitna because it actually the way it, it, it the way it that developed was from the idea of the injustice of um, the the injustice of violating one's what we call in our modern age one's space, but that's a different matter. 
But the fitna, the original fitna in the Quran, the Quranic fitna has nothing to do with sex or sexual enticement. The Quranic fitna has to do with unaddressed injustices. That as a matter of principle, for people to live with unaddressed injustices, in other words, an injustice occurs and people don't redress it, that is a great danger. And as Ghazali noted it, Arabi noted it, Matridi noted it, Razi noted it, that the reason it is a great danger is that it results in moral decay. People having suffered an injustice and having acclimated themselves to the idea that an injustice is not redressed lose belief they no longer believe in justice so they lose belief in morality itself in our in my language and to have a society that has been soured on the idea of morality because it has grown accustomed to suffering injustice is much worse than the harm and the misery of fighting. So you are fighting those who fight you not because you love fighting but because the principle itself in the same way that I can't corrupt society by giving wealth to the powerful, even if I will gain an advantage, I'm not allowed to do that. Do you see how everything in Surah Al-Baqarah is geared towards that moral insight, that moral trajectory, that in the same way that the, the you live anchored in bir. Bir is necessary and adl is necessary for to, so that you discharge your obligation as a witness for God. In the same way that you cannot allow the powerful to profit. Here again, the purpose of fighting is that to address an injustice. Okay. So, and وَيَكُونَ الدِّينَ الدِّينُ لِلَّهِ فَإِنْ انْتَهُوا فَلَا عِدْوَانَ إِلَّا عَلَى الظَّالِمِينَ وَيَكُونَ الدِّينُ لِلَّهِ doesn't mean, it has to be understood in, in the context of Allah constantly telling us that People will never believe, all people will not will never become Muslims regardless of how much you want them to. And that people will all people will never follow the Prophet regardless of how much you want them to. So here when Allah says fight them so that deen will be Lillah. The clear meaning here is that so the principle itself of 
the 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 principle of belief the the potentiality for belief will be there so in other words if you don't fight them and as a result people feel the impact the corrupting influence of unaddressed injustice the bitterness the sourness the fear the hypocrisy will make it impossible for people to access God's religion but if people see you as someone who stands up for justice who struggles for justice who sacrifices for justice that dynamic makes the possibility of people understanding what religion stands for uncorrupted religion stands for that potentiality is preserved because it is not saying so fight them so everyone will become a Muslim and prove so if they don't fight you anymore they're not transgressing upon you anymore there's no injustice to be redressed then stop and here again that is underscored in the concept of al-hurumat because al-masjid al-haram is a sanctuary and in pre-islamic culture let me see if i'm honest i'm not skipping anything yeah uh, in pre-islamic culture there are particular months in the year that are considered months of sanctuary and Rajab. these four months are months in which you affirmatively make an effort not to commit violence, not to wage war. It, it is like a, a, a time out. And Islam honored or embraced these four months, the Hurumat in these four months. But the Quran comes again and affirms the idea of priorities in that that does not mean that you suffer an injustice in whether in the haram or in the ashur al-hurum and not respond and an unaddressed injustice is a bigger evil than violating the sanctity of the sanctified month or the sanctity of the haram. Okay. So, فَمَنِ أَتَدَى عَلَيْكُمْ Whoever transgresses against you, 
فَاعْتَدُوا عَلَيْهِ بِمِثْلِ مَا اَعْتَدَى عَلَيْكُمْ Your response to them must be proportional. Now, it is, it's, it's remarkable because when a Muslim jurists later on write about the law of what we call the law of nations before the birth of the law of nations. So Shaybani starts writing about um, he comes to the principle of proportionality in war that your response to an act of aggression must be proportional. You cannot cause more damage than you've suffered. But they even go beyond that and they even say that there are certain things that are, are you, you, can't, you can't attack even if the enemy does it to you. Like if the enemy destroys mosques, for instance, you can't destroy churches in, in retaliation. Later on, much later on, in when in the context of the rise of colonialism, there emerges Western theorists like Grotius and Suarez and Pfuffendorf and so on that start thinking about the sort of the natural law in the law of nations. Now, of course, when, when they thought of the law of nations, they talked about the law of nations among civilized nations, basically among white people. So what the law should be among white people. Um, I mean, that's usually what they meant by civilized nations, uh, colonial powers, white colonial powers colonizing the world. And they eventually, in the 16th, 17th century, come to the idea of proportionality when a civilized nation fights another civilized nation. There was no rule of proportionality when a civilized nation fights an uncivilized nation. So if you're dealing that, that's why it was entirely legitimate that if you suffer an attack from what you consider to be barbarians, you could wipe them all out, as colonialism often did. I, I'm not one of those people who, you know, finds it satisfying to say Muslims came up with it. but. As a legalist, it really does astound me that in in the age that is people like Shaibani were writing in the 10th AD, where the, the idea of proportionality in warfare was just completely, it's like um, daydreaming. It was just completely unheard of. And you, you, you have these Muslim jurists talking about proportionality, and it's anchored on this Quranic revelation that who your response to an act of aggression has to be proportional. It cannot go beyond. Just because you suffered an injustice is not a license for you to do whatever you want. Okay, and notice then this amazing Quranic wasiya that if we would only listen to it, وَنْفِقُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَلَا تُلْقُوا بِأَيْدِيَكُمْ إِلَى التَّهْلُكَةِ وَأَحْسِنُوا وَأَحْسِنُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُحْسِنِينَ So, 
spend in Allah's way and don't cast yourself onto ruin. I, I know that other, you've heard me say this before, but the casting yourself onto ruin here is by failing to spend to support righteous causes. In the age of moral defeat, in the age of moral defeat, the tendency, because exactly we've allowed fitan, fitan meaning unaddressed injustices. So let me put this very clear. To speak about an injustice suffered by those who were victims of an injustice is never a fitna. But the oppression of a ruler is a fitna. Of course, later Islam, Amawi and Abbasi Islam, they, they tried to corrupt that. They, they tried to introduce a hadith to change the Quranic trajectory. Because that's very dangerous to think of, well, the ruler as the one who commits the fitna, not the ruled. It is not the, it is the, the fitna comes from the powerful not the disempowered. Because in modern Islam, if you try to criticize unjust rulers, the first thing people tell you is, oh, you're, caught, you're causing fitna. That is not a Quranic understanding. That is a theological understanding that arose from the context of Amawi and Abbasi imperial Islam. The Quranic understanding is that the fitna is the injustice committed. Now, this is really important. Why? Because when the Quran comes and says, don't cast yourself onto ruin in the age of moral decay, the way this is understood is don't resist injustice because Injustice will crush you. Don't stand up for what is right. Don't ruin yourself. You know that idiomatic expression, don't ruin yourself. While in the Quranic outlook, it is the failure to stand up to fitna, i.e. the failure to stand up to oppression and injustice is casting yourself onto ruin. It's a completely flipped on its head. Imperial Islam is not Quranic Islam. Imperial Islam is a product of a historical process in which people positioned in power try to engineer theological beliefs that serve that power base. Studying Quranic Islam or the Islam of the Prophet is a liberating process because you discover that it is in fact when you fail to stand up to justice, to injustice, is what 
casting yourself onto ruin is. So, and look at what the Quran underscores. So, it is, it all starts with how we circulate money. Because circulation of money is often even more important than the idea. There are a lot of people who are poor, miserable, no real opportunities, so they are willing to just sacrifice themselves. But that is not the real tough challenge in fighting oppression. The real tough challenge in fighting oppression is to get those who have every reason to live. In other words, they have wealth. So they have every reason to want to live to actually direct their resources in the right course, i.e. to uphold justice, to fight what they, to fight transgression, to fight dhulm, to fight oppression. And so, and this is followed with what this, again, like, like the Quranic refrain towards Tayyibat and towards Al-Bir, Wahsinu, just a simple word. Wahsinu. Wahsinu, do what is beautiful. Inna allaha yuhibbul muhsineen. Now, I, I, there is, in the same way that human beings all the time will say something like, well, you know, shaitan is telling me, whispering to me this and that, but I'll do it anyway. Well, that happens all the time where you, you're honest with yourself, you will admit to yourself that, Shaitan is whispering in your head stuff, but you do it anyway. With Ihsan, quite often, people will acknowledge what is beautifully good and ignore it anyway. You say, yeah, well, you know, if I want to be beautifully good, I would do this, but, but, Look at the imperative form, wa'ahsinu. It's as imperative as wa'aqimu salah or wa'atu zakah. Like, do it. And, inna Allah yuhibbu al-muhsineen. Allah loves those who orient themselves towards the performance of ihsan doing what is beautifully good. Now, note that earlier in Surah Al-Baqarah that we've, we've talked about, that to earn that position where Allah loves you, you must do what would you must do what Allah loves. I mean, it's so obvious, but it needs to be said. 
that in the same way Allah says, وَذْكُرُونِ أَذْكُرْكُمْ So remember me, so I will remember you. Well, there is no real chance that you will ever understand what loving Allah is because Allah will not allow your heart to understand what Allah's love is unless you do what Allah loves. If you do what Allah loves, then Allah will love you and because Allah loves you, then Allah will make you among the muqarrabin. The, the meaning Allah will open your heart to the understanding of what loving Allah is. So, you know, there are people who come and say, oh, you know, I, I don't understand what, uh, to, to, what loving Allah means. It's not an intellectual thing. You're not going to sit and reason through it. Oh, you know, I, I'm going to think my way into loving Allah. Similarly, you're not going to do dhikr and dhikr. It's not a matter of dhikr. You can do dhikr night and day, every day in your life, and not understand that iota of what Allah's love is. To begin the process of loving Allah and feeling Allah's love, you have to do what Allah loves. If Allah tells you that Allah loves Ihsan, then that's what you must do. It is the performance of Ihsan that tenderizes your heart and that makes that magical touch, that magic of Allah's touch reaching in and transforms your relationship to your maker. It's like someone asked me some years ago, are you saying that I cannot fall in love with Allah unless I'm constantly helping everyone in need? This, this guy had a family that was in, his family members were, were not well off and so on. Until I pay, I spend my salary taking care of my family. And I said, yes. That's what I'm telling you. It's not your prayer, it's not your dhikr, it's not your sunnah, it's not your fasting. That's not going to teach you what Allah's love is. But being, being there for those who need you, being a bar, being a bar, a person of birr, that's what's going to do teach you what loving Allah is and you will feel Allah's love and you you will be able to understand for the first time what that relationship of love between Allah and the Abd is okay I don't I don't feel like uh, going beyond this tonight
of I just want to leave you with this point because I can't possibly say anything more valuable than this if only Muslims would understand this so much would change so I'm gonna stop here tonight the, uh, Grace has to do the honors of official Alhamdulillah I told myself that um, in order to make my my closing remarks more meaningful because last time I tried to just share with people the things that really stood out with me so I thought okay maybe that's adding a little bit of value so as soon as I start feeling like uh oh we're getting towards the end I start going back to my notes and I start collecting and looking at all my things to make notes about what I can share and if you look at my very last page it's all the stars I usually try to share all the stars and literally it's like every single thing is starred <laughs> so um, too, many stars. too many stars. Well, I mean, I would normally start everything, but I mean, the last part was really just so beautiful. And anyway, just to highlight um, <clears throat> what, I mean, where do I, it's like, okay, again, thank you. I have to say, how can we not say thank you? This is just, I mean, everything is just so mind-blowing, but the idea of teaching us about Bir and Tayyib, I mean, you at the break, you you were saying you wanted to pull your hair out because this is like such an important concept and you know, do people know it? And we were saying here, some of us, this is the first time we've actually ever heard it and to even understand it. And then more importantly, how to apply it to our world today. Um, because it, you know, now this starts making you think, okay, well maybe I should be vegan. Because how do I know if animals are being tortured? and that, you know, I'm eating meat that, you know, of a, an animal that has suffered. Or maybe I really need to be super careful about, you know, and I know some of the, some people already do this, but, you know, buying things that come from China. How do I know that this wasn't, you know, made by Muslims in Uyghur camps? Or, um, you know, just thinking about keeping things clean and pure and, you know, and our relationship to money. Um, and just defining that complete picture um, you know, and then as you got into um, the, the, the different laws and pointing out um, how, as is in your words, you know, law is always presented on a soft bed of moral understanding and pointing out for us to see, you know, okay, here's, here's the technicality of law, but here's the bigger moral point and emphasizing that, which doesn't happen in our day and age because everybody is so tripped up on the technicality of law as if morality doesn't matter. And again, bringing us back to the idea that this is the mistake that Jews made, that they fell in love with law for the sake of law and forgot about morality and that this is some, a trap that we clearly are falling into. Um, and then the idea of fitna, I mean, the whole discussion of understanding that this is, you know, an, um, an unaddressed injustice as opposed to a woman, you know, showing a hair coming out of her her scarf in, in you know, in a mosque. Um, and then just the implication of that and how we understand this, just the sophistication of the idea that, you know, what happens when you get used to living in an unjust world where you stop believing in morality and that you have to fight for it so you can be an example that religion can actually call people to do something moral and make a change. I mean, all of these things are just like, to hear it is, is just so refreshing and, and so unusual. Um, 
and then the idea of proportionality, but you know, all of it to the end of the, just what you said within the last 10, 15 minutes about developing that relationship of love with Allah and that you're not gonna achieve loving Allah and that relationship intellectually. You can't think your way through it or to it that it needs to come by doing what Allah loves. And it was so important, like you said, people, you know, we hear it, we say it, but we don't think about it. And to really understand that, you know, to really point out that, you know, to begin this process of feeling love and allowing Allah to open our hearts to that love, that we actually have to do what Allah loves, um, seems so obvious, but so missed in our time. Um, there's just so much that you said, um, that needs to be fully absorbed. Um, but even just hearing it for the first time, I think opens your brain, your heart, your soul. It just, it's overwhelming and yet refreshing and so beautiful. And, um, you know, I just, I'm so grateful. And, um, you know, we all need to kind of like go and process it. And um, inshallah, may Allah open our hearts to it and help us truly understand it and learn it and, and make that change in our lives. So thank you so much. This was just so valuable. It's, not enough words. So, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us. Um, and um, inshallah, join us. Today's Wednesday. Join us Friday for for khutbah, and Saturday um, for the next installment. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Assalamualaikum.